Well, one day there was a policeman who was out on patrol, and as he was sitting on a corner, he saw a little boy on a tricycle riding around a block at a high rate of speed. And this little boy passed the policeman's cruiser numerous times, still at this high rate of speed. And finally, the policeman was curious, and he said, what is this little boy doing? So he got out, and he waited for him as he came around yet again, and he stopped him, and he said, son, he said, what are you doing? And the little boy said, well, I'm running away from home. (laughs) Now, the policeman said, well, if you're running away from home, why are you circling this block? And he said, well, my house is on this block, and my parents won't let me cross the street. (laughs) Now, what I like about that story is that it shows how obedience can keep us close to those that we love. And as we turn in our Bible today to Matthew chapter 21... We're going to be looking at a parable about love and obedience. Now, as you're turning in your Bible there to Matthew chapter 21, if you're using a New International Version of the Bible, I want you to know that because of a decision of the translators, the order of the two sons is going to be reversed. So as we're reading through this passage, if you're thinking, I got lost, it's the way that the translators have put the NIV order. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard. But as we look at this parable... I want to set the context for you because as we look at this passage, many of you know that we are approaching uh, Good Friday, the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem and he gave his life on the cross to pay the penalty of death for our sins. And before Good Friday, there was the triumphal entry of Jesus called Palm Sunday. And if we were going through the book of Matthew in chronological order, in the first part of Matthew 21, we would have seen the triumphal entry of Jesus already taking place. And so what we find contextually here is that Jesus is at the height of his popularity. The crowds have been clamoring for him. They, they are hopeful that he is indeed the Messiah, the one who will be a military Messiah. But as his popularity is rising, the popularity of the religious leaders, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes, is diminishing. They're losing their hold on power. So their their jealousy is at its height. And this is the background as we pick up the story here in Matthew chapter 21, verse 23. It says that the religious leaders come to confront Jesus. When he entered the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching... And they said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. What was the source? From heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. The religious leaders had come to trap Jesus, and yet once again he turns the tables on them, and they find themselves in the hot seat. John the Baptist, as many of you know, was a a prophet sent ahead by God to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah, to call the people to repentance, to let them know that the, the promised one was on the way. And the religious leaders didn't like John the Baptist any more than they liked Jesus. And as they look at John, and as they kind of, you know, the times they were in the wilderness around him, kind of standing by, and he had lots of nice things to say about them, like, you brood of vipers, who told you to flee from the wrath to come, and things. And so as Jesus asks this question, they're between the proverbial rock and a hard place. 
They know that if they say John's message was from God, then as they've already reasoned among themselves, Jesus is going to say, why didn't you accept it? Why didn't you repent? Why didn't you do what John was calling you to do? And if they say from men, the, the adulation of men that they crave so much will be taken from them because the people said John was a prophet of God. And so they take the fifth. They say in verse 27, in answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. And he also said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, in verses 28 through 32, we see that Jesus doesn't let them off the hook because he comes back to them with another question. And he says, but what do you think? A man had two sons and he came to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. And he answered and he said, I will, sir. And he did not go. And he came to the second and he said the same thing. But he answered and said, I will not. Yet afterwards he regretted it and he went. Jesus said, which of these two did the will of the father? And they said, the latter. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that the tax gatherers and the harlots, the prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax gatherers and the harlots did believe him. And you seeing this did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. Now, in this parable, we find the the cast of characters mentioned. The father represents God the Father in heaven. You have the two sons that represent groups of people. The one son, who was initially disobedient, who lived life the way that he wanted, represents those like the tax gatherers, the harlots, the prostitutes, the people of the day who were seen as the worst sinners, the ones farthest from God. And initially they lived their lives in rebellion, but then they said, we need to do what God wants. And they repented and came to him. These are the sinners who have been saved. Now the other seemingly good son represents the religious type of leaders. These individuals who outwardly looked good, who gave lip service to God, and yet their lives did not follow through with it. In Matthew 25, I'm sorry, in Matthew chapter 23 and verses 5 through 7, Jesus says this, But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries, and they lengthen the tassels on their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets, and the chief seats in the synagogues, and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by men. Now, when you read about these things, a phylactery, a phylactery are these broad leather strips that you see, uh, there's also the tefillim, these boxes that you see on the forehead. They would contain scripture, and there was also another box that they would have on their elbow. And so these initially were just things where it tells you they took literally the call to bind uh, these, the, the word of God on their bodies. And so this is what they did. Now, the tassels, if you've ever seen a Jewish prayer shawl today, these are these cords that hang down. And what the Pharisees did was they began to make these strips of leather wider and wider. They began to make these boxes bigger and bigger so that, I mean, they're kind of hard to miss to begin with, but they wanted everybody to see these things. When they were wearing their, their, their shawls, they wanted there to be no mistake. They wanted the cords hanging out so that nobody would be able to miss it. This is what Jesus is condemning them for doing, for, for taking these things 
and uh, increasing the size in order to bring greater notice to themselves. We have already seen past parables where he talks about them fighting over the honored seats at the banquet. They love to be called rabbi, teacher. These are the guys that want to be addressed as preacher, and yet they would not practice what they themselves preached. And they didn't practice what John the Baptist was preaching, which was the call for repentance, to turn to God and find his forgiveness. In another parable in Luke chapter 18 and verses 9 through 14, Jesus speaks of these two different groups again. And this is what he says of them. He says, and he also told a parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was not even willing to lift his eyes to heaven. But he was beating his chest, and he said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus says, I tell you that this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. As John the Baptist came, this is what he was calling people to. A sense of understanding that they were sinners. A sense of understanding that they were far from God and they needed God and his grace. But in Matthew 3, verses 5 through 7, it tells us, Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, this is John, and all the district around the Jordan, and all were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? You see, John wasn't telling them, Look, y'all are not allowed to repent. You're you're not allowed to, to come to Christ. You're not allowed to turn. But what John was saying is, Listen, no more business as usual. This isn't about having all the external trinkets, about being religious about wearing your phylacteries and and lengthening the cords and now adding the external sign of baptism so that everybody can see you've got your certificate. You went out and you did this. What he says is those outward signs are not going to save you. And the same is true for us today. We're not saved by going to church. We're not saved by the good works that we do. We're not saved by the stuff that we give to God, whether it's our time, our talents, our treasures. What God says is there is only one way that we are saved. And that is when we turn from our sins and we turn to his son, Jesus Christ, who gave his life on the cross to die for us. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we're told, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one should boast. The Pharisees were those who were trusting in their outward signs of righteousness and how good they thought they were. But what Jesus says in this parable is the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the people that you say are on the lowest end of the scale, the worst sinners of the day, Jesus says they are coming to faith. They are coming into the kingdom because they have come to me as the Messiah. They've repented. They've turned from their sins. 
And they've been welcomed into the family as sons and daughters. Jesus tells us in John 1.12, But as many as received him, to them he gave them the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Now, for the seemingly good son here, representing these religious leaders, they were not ready to humble themselves. Remember the prayer of the Pharisee in the, the other parable out of Luke? God, I thank you I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And then he lists all the good things he does. I, I fast and I pay tithes on all that I have. Friends, does that describe any of us? Are any of us those who are looking at our spiritual resume saying, well, <laughs> I'm pretty righteous. These are the things that, that make me acceptable to God. But if you're thinking that like the Pharisees did, or maybe you're thinking, you know, it's not really fair that those other people get into the kingdom. I mean, prostitutes, tax collectors, those who swindle and cheat others, those who live their lives for themselves, doing all the things in the world. It's really not fair that they get into heaven. Have you ever thought that? Maybe you're more righteous than me. There have been times in my life I kind of go, eh, it's not really fair. And yet, when I start thinking about fairness, suddenly I remember what fair really is. And I say, you know, I don't want fair. Because what the Bible tells us is, what is fair is that not a single one of us gets into heaven. Because Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the, <clears throat> excuse me, the glory of God. God's standard is perfection. The Pharisees and the religious leaders thought they were doing pretty good. But what they needed to understand is God does not grade on the curve. He grades at the cross. You know, so many of us say, well, if the standard is 100 and I'm the highest scoring person in the class and I make, a, say, a 91, well, then that means that becomes the new 100 and everything is based off that on the curve. Well, that's not how God operates. God says there is a standard of perfection. And Romans 3.10 tells us there is none righteous, no, not one. There's not a single one of us who would ever get to God if it was based upon how good we are. It's based upon what God's son did when he went to the cross to pay the penalty of death. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And as Jesus is telling this parable here, that's what he wants them to understand. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short. I want you to think of your life for a minute as being like a piece of tempered glass. And if you take tempered glass, you know that it's designed instead of uh, if, if there's an impact on the glass, the way that it's designed is to shatter so that it doesn't do damage as you would go through and cut yourself on the shards and other things. And if you take a piece of tempered glass, you can take a BB or a pellet gun and you can pump it up and shoot that piece of tempered glass. And you know what happens? It'll shatter it. It may not blow it out of the frame, but it'll, it'll crack and it'll do what it's designed to do. So it doesn't matter whether you hit it with a little pellet or whether you take a deer slug and shoot a 12-gauge deer slug. If you've ever done something like that, you know it tears your arm up with a kickback. And if I shoot that piece of tempered glass with that big deer slug and all that power behind it, it will not only shatter, but it'll blow the thing out of the frame. And friends, as you think of your life today, whether you have hit your life, so to speak, with a little pellet, 
a tiny little bit of sin or a huge slug, it doesn't matter. Either way, the thing is shattered and it is broken. And our fellowship with God is like that. When we sin, we destroy our relationship with him and we separate ourselves from God. And so what God says is, whether it's a little sin or a big sin, we still face the same problem. Now, some of you may be sitting here today saying, you know, Roger, I'm a little deer slug. That's nothing. I've blown the glass out with a bazooka, right? A shoulder-mounted anti-tank missile. And you may be sitting here this morning saying, I understand that God can forgive some of those people like prostitutes and tax collectors, but I make them look like a good person with the mistakes I've made in my life. What about me this morning? What the Bible says to you this morning is the same thing. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What God says to you this morning is that while you were at your worst, while you were in rebellion, while you were running from God, while you were far from him, Christ died for you. Jesus came to Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 21 to go to the cross, to be the sacrifice, the Passover lamb, the one who would remove the stain of sin once and for all. John the Baptist said of him, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if you look at your life today and you say, Roger, I am far from God. What God says today is you need to repent. You need to see your need for him and you need to come to him. Now, once we come to Christ, we're not to continue living in sin like we have a blank check. Romans 6, 1 through 4 tells us this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Remember that the son here who had once been disobedient had repented. And as he thought about his past disobedience, it says that he regretted his sin. Now, we've all seen those individuals who regret getting caught, right? There's a difference between regretting that you were caught and repentance. What does repentance mean? Well, the Greek word that is used here is metamelomai. And what metamelomai means is to have a change of your mind where you realize you're going in the wrong direction. And then it means to stop. And then it means to turn around and go in the other direction. It's not just having a, uh, gosh, I feel really bad about my sin. It is a change of action to go with it. And so if you picture yourself standing at the cross of Christ, or if you're somebody who's never come to the cross of Christ, what you're doing is walking away from God in your relationship. And what God says is you realize you're on the wrong road. And when you repent, you literally say, I need to stop, and I need to turn around, and I need to go to God. For some here this morning, it may be for for the very first time. You need to stop where you are and you need to realize the things I'm doing to be righteous are not good enough. Being religious will not get me to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There is only one way home to heaven. 
And for some of you this morning, it may be that you need to say, I need to come to the cross of Christ for the first time. For others of us as believers, we came to faith a long, long time ago. And over time, what we've done, we as Christians call it backsliding. And we've kind of been moving away from God. We've been living uh, contrary to the things that God calls us to do. And what we need to do is to realize we're going in the wrong direction and to stop and to turn around and go back in the other direction. The, the disobedient son here realized that they were going in the wrong direction. These tax collectors, these prostitutes, these others said, we are, we are far from God and going even farther in the wrong direction. And when they repented, they said, I need the Messiah. I need to turn from my sins and I need to turn to Jesus to be my Savior. And they did so. Now, the religious leaders were unwilling to, to do this. They were still depending upon their righteousness. They were still thinking, well, I'm, I want to work off the, the curve instead of the cross. And if you're somebody here this morning saying, on a sliding scale, I look pretty good. That's great, but that's not the standard that God will use. And so this morning, you need to ask yourself, have you ever repented? Have you ever recognized that you are a sinner And whether it was a little BB, whether it was a deer slug or a bazooka, you are far from God and you've shattered the relationship. And the only way to restore it is to come to Jesus Christ, asking him to be your savior. Now, as we come to Christ, we've seen in Romans that it's, we're not called to keep living the way that we've always lived. We're to change our life. There should be a change in our lives where when we say yes to Jesus, it should show up not just in our lip service, but in our lives. When we say, Jesus, you tell us to love one another and to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and everything that we are. And Jesus, I will do that. Yes means yes. Not like the first son who said, yes, I'll do what you want, Father. And then they go off and they do what they want. When we say, yes, Jesus, I will follow you. It means, in fact, we will follow him. We will turn around. We will go closer to him. We will live as he calls us to do. There are times, I'll I'll tell you all, that I struggle being this kind of child. There are times that I want to be the son that says yes outwardly. And yet I recognize that I need to follow through with my life and do so. Do any of you struggle with that at times? Are there times that you say, yes, God, and then uh, it becomes easy to, to forget the promises or the pull of the world or the other things in your life get in the way? And in those times, we need to stop, we need to turn around, and we need to come back to God. We need to tell God, God, I need your help. We need to pray. When we fall short, confess that sin. And then say, God, I need your help to live as, as I should. Now, sometimes I talk with people who see God as this hard, unforgiving taskmaster, and they feel like it's, it's a burden to be a believer. And friends, if you've ever felt that way, then you really don't understand who God is. Listen to how God is described for us in John 15, verses 14 through 16. Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves. For the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that you, I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain and that whatever you ask of the father in my name, he may give to you. 
Those of us who belong to Jesus are called to bear fruit. The book of James tells us faith without works is dead. And as you look at how we bear fruit in our life, that passage in John says that we go to God in prayer. We ask for his help. We ask for his power. Jesus tells us in another passage, in Matthew 9, 37 through 38, Jesus called his disciples and said, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. God says to pray. Pray that you will raise up, that that God, you will raise up additional workers. That you will send people out into the harvest. How many of you are praying faithfully for God to raise up workers? We just finished our two-week missions conference. And many of you heard great stories from around the world, and you saw those that God has raised up and that he has sent out around the world. And we have individuals here in our church right now that are praying through going to the field. We have three individuals from Wayside, uh, one family, the Cliftons, and Taylor Putnam, a, a college young lady, that are going to the mission field, that are in the midst of raising support in our church right now, trying to go into the field. And we have others that are praying through that. We have other men. We have six men in our church right now that are going through seminary, that are preparing for vocational Christian service to be pastors, they and their families. These are individuals that God is raising up. And I wonder how many of you, as you've prayed for God to send workers into the field, into the harvest, have ever asked yourself, God, are you talking about me? God, am I the answer to my prayer? Have you ever prayed that? Some of you say, I'm afraid to pray that kind of prayer because I know where that might lead. But are we those who are willing as we pray for God to raise up servants to say, Lord, here am I, send me, as Isaiah said. Do we put our, our lives in the offering plate, not just our money in the offering plate? Some of you have heard of Tony Campolo. Now, whether you agree with all that he represents or not, uh, I love this story that he tells of a time he was part of a missions board. And as he was in this missions board meeting, there was a a note that came from one of their missionaries was carried in and there was an urgent financial need of several thousand dollars for this uh, missionary family, what they were facing. And uh, the board chair said to Tony, uh, Tony, would you pray for this need? And Tony said, no, I won't pray for that. And the whole board was shocked. You're not going to pray for this need? Do you not think it's important? He said, I think it's very important. He said, but rather than us praying about this need, he stood up, he reached in his pocket, he pulled out all his money, took out his wallet, put everything he had there, including a check he had just received for his speaking engagement. He, he said, I want everybody else in the room to do the same thing. All the other board members stood up. They pulled everything they had out of their pockets, out of their wallets, their purses. They put it on the table. It was counted up. And there was more than enough to meet the need that they had just been asked to pray about. Friends, how many times do we pray for a need when we have the power within ourselves at that moment to meet the very need we're praying for? Whether it's a need to give, whether it's a need to go ourselves. As you look at your life, are you one who is willing, as I said, to put your life in the offering plate and to say, Lord, here am I. Let me fulfill the need that I see in front of me, this thing that I've been praying for. Now, friends, I'm thankful that as I look at Wayside, this is a church that does this faithfully. There was one pastor who said, we love to sing standing on the promises when we're sitting on the premises. And I'm thankful that this is a church that is not just sitting on the premises. 
This is a church that I see week in and week out give faithfully to support the needs of the ministry. This is a church that gives not just of their financial resources, but gives of their time and their talents. We see it every single weekend. Whether you realize it or not, it literally takes hundreds of volunteers every weekend to run the ministry of Wayside Chapel. It happens with those who serve in the children's ministry, the student ministries, the college area. It happens with the shuttle drivers, the greeters, the ushers, the parking team members. It happens with those in Hebrews Cafe, those who are serving in the adult Bible fellowships, those who serve all throughout the property in the worship team, the choir, the orchestra, the band, and the other services. We have individuals who give every single week, not just what you see happening on a Sunday morning. It's Wednesday night, Thursday night, Tuesday night, Friday night. There are ministries every night of the week almost that are happening on this property and in the morning with mops and the, and the women's studies and the other things that are happening. And it is because the people who make up Wayside Chapel as individuals and as a corporate body are giving of their lives, saying, I want to be the son who says yes and then follows through in the ways that they serve. You know, this week you may be noticed in your bulletin that we're beginning registration for Vacation Bible School. Last year, we had 423 kids. That's not volunteers. Those were the kids who attended who came to Vacation Bible School. And of that group, 37 of those kids gave their life to Jesus Christ. And it is because hundreds of others faithfully said, I will give of my time to serve. There are teams that have already been at work planning and preparing for Vacation Bible School. As you think about God and his work, ask yourself, how are you working personally in God's vineyard? Where do you serve? Not just within the doors of Wayside. It may be ministries outside of the doors of our church, where you work, where you go to school, and some of the other ministries in town that you're a part of. Ask yourself, are you serving in God's vineyard? James 1.22 tells us, But prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. God calls us to faith and obedience. And remember as he does that, he's not some slave driver who's just trying to get us to do some work. He says in John 15, I call you friends, not slaves. It is a privilege that we are invited to share in his work. In this parable, Jesus asks the question, What do you think? What do you think? As you've listened to this message today, as you've heard what God has called you to do as a believer in Jesus Christ or as one who needs to maybe become a believer in Jesus Christ, what will you do today? What is the so what for you today? As you think about what you're going to do with what God's word says I want to remind you of a situation that happened in July of 1976. There were terrorists who took over an Air France jetliner that was filled with Jewish passengers. There were 103 uh, Jewish nationals on this flight. And you'll recall that Idi Amin was in power during that time, and he allowed the terrorists to hijack this plane and to land it in Entebbe, Uganda. I was just there uh, a few months ago, and you could see the building still with some of the bullet holes from the raid where the Israeli commandos came in and decided to, sh- to save these hostages because they had released all the passengers except for the 103 Jews. And they had them in this building, and they decided they were going to kill the Jews 
They had listening devices in there. They knew what was about to happen. And so the Israeli commandos stormed the building. And in this lightning raid, as they entered the building, they shouted in Hebrew, get down, crawl, get down, crawl. Now, the Jews understood Hebrew. The, the terrorists did not know what was being said. And so as the individuals dropped to the floor, the Israeli commandos just opened up with their automatic weapons, cutting down everybody who was standing, which were the terrorists. And unfortunately, there were three Jewish nationals who were killed as well because for some reason they did not get down in the commotion. They heard the command that would have saved their life But because they did not respond and follow through on it, they tragically lost their lives. All of you this morning have heard what God has called us to do. First, our need to repent. First, our need to come to God, to say, God, I realize that maybe like the the religious leaders, I felt that I'm righteous. I felt that I'm good enough. But what God says to us is we are not good enough to get to God on our own. We are coming to the communion table now. And as we come to the communion table, what it does is it reminds us of what it is that makes us acceptable to God. It's not based upon our works. It's not based upon how we have lived our life. It's based upon the work of God's son, Jesus Christ, who came to give his life on the cross. As you look at this parable, I want you to notice that what Jesus says is, that these tax gatherers, these, these wretched sinners as the religious leaders saw them, it says they have entered the kingdom of heaven before you. Do you see that? It doesn't say instead of you. It says before you. What Jesus said is the door is open today to you. Those of you who maybe have thought that you can get there on your own, that you can be good enough. What God reminds us of today is that it is not based upon what we do. The one son initially said, I will do what I want. I will live my life for myself. And as, as these prostitutes, tax gatherers, and others lived their lives far from God, they recognized they needed to, to repent, to stop, turn around, and come to God. To turn from their sins and to turn to Jesus to be their Savior. What do you need to do today? Are you one who is far from God? Who needs to say to him, God, I am a sinner? And I need to receive your son today to be my savior. The other group thought they were good enough and they didn't need Jesus. But Jesus reminded them that the door was still open. He said, these individuals have gotten in before you. Not instead of you, but before you. And if you're here today and you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ, you're reminded today of the way that we get home through the sacrifice of God's son, Jesus, who gave his life going to the cross, as we'll celebrate in a few weeks on Good Friday, as he went to be the payment for our sins, to shed his blood to wash away our sins. And this morning we're reminded of that great gift to us. The bread that you will hold in a moment represents the body of Jesus, and the cup represents his blood that was shed to wash away our sins. If you're here today and you've never received Jesus as your Savior, and today you're ready to come to to Christ and to say, I'm turning from my sins unto you to be my Savior, I invite you to take the elements and hold them and say, God, it is based upon this, what you did for me that I recognize I need in my life to be saved from my sins. And today, Jesus, I accept you as my Savior. I invite you to do that. 
for the rest of us who have done that in the past. Maybe we've been far from God. And you need to take this time to say to God, God, I want to come home. I want to turn around. I want to stop what I'm doing. And I want to turn back to you. And today, God, I confess those sins. This is an open table to all who are believers in Jesus Christ. You don't have to be a member of our church. You just have to be a believer in Jesus Christ. I invite you to take the elements, hold them, spend this time in prayer, and then we'll take communion together. Men, will you serve us, please?
as Jesus reminded the religious leaders of John the Baptist in his ministry. We remember the words that John spoke as he saw Jesus coming to be baptized. And Jesus, as you recall, came to fulfill all forms of righteousness. John said, I'm not even fit to undo the strap of your sandal. And Jesus said, I want you to baptize me as an example. And as John saw Jesus coming, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus came into Jerusalem, as you'll recall, around the time of, that we celebrate as Good Friday, his crucifixion. But for the Jews, it was Passover, the time where they were reminded of the Passover lamb that was sacrificed and the blood was applied to the doorpost of their home so the angel of death would pass over those homes. And for all of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, Jesus representing the perfect and permanent Passover, his blood has been applied to the doorpost of our heart. And when God sees that sign, when God sees the sins that have been washed away, it says that he will pass over us as well in judgment. Jesus paid the penalty. Jesus purchased our freedom by his death. And so we hold in our hand a piece of bread representing the perfect and permanent Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for us. Eat it in remembrance of him. And we have here a cup of juice. But it's more than just a simple cup of juice. It represents, again, the blood of Jesus. At the Last Supper, as Jesus was there with his disciples, he told them, this is the cup of the new covenant. Again, looking at the Passover celebration, there were numerous cups that took place during the Seder. And and Jesus took one that was called the cup of redemption. And he says, this is the cup of redemption representing my blood that will be shed for you to wash away the penalty of sin. As Jesus knelt in the garden, as he knew what was coming, that he was about to go through this excruciating crucifixion, he could have walked away. And yet he prayed, Father, not my will be done, but yours. And he willingly went and he gave his life to wash away our sins, to pay the penalty of death that I owed and you owed. He gave his life to save us. And today he asks us, are we willing to give our lives to be the son who says to the father, yes, father, I will do what you want. I will go and work in your vineyard. I will live for you and not simply for myself. This cup reminds us of what Jesus was willing to do for us, to give his very life, to give us the gift of eternal life. Drink it in remembrance of him. Will you join me, please, as we close in prayer? Lord God, we thank you <clears throat> for your unbelievable love for us. Love that we can't even comprehend. That would cause you, the creator, to come down here to earth, to live not just among your creation, but ultimately to give your very life to redeem and to save us. We who were in rebellion, we who were sinners, who were running far from you, your word tells us you demonstrated your great love for us and that you, Jesus, would die for us to save us. Thank you for that great love. Thank you for that great gift of grace and eternal life. 
Father, as we enter into this season where many of our co-workers and our neighbors and our friends around us are thinking about what does Easter really mean? Is it about more than just the Easter bunny and eggs? Are the claims of Christ really true? May we be willing, Father, to be those who are witnesses, to reach out to our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, our family members who need to hear the message of grace. Would you help us, Father, to be those who are messengers of the good news of eternal life? Would you open up opportunities for us? And then, Lord, would you open our mouths and allow us to share the good news with those who need to know your Son? Thank you for the gift of grace. May we go and share it with others this day. In Jesus' name we pray and thank you. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.